We have come to the last part of this document, but I want to do a review, a long review. I'm going to start with the God's wrath in the Bible document. But I first want to give a little preamble. And this isn't just for you here, but for those listening online. This whole thing started with questions about God's character in in light of Jesus' death and and why did Jesus have to die. And so we pursued that uh, in the writings of Ellen White, mostly her chapter, It is Finished in Desire of Ages. But of course, when you talk about atonement and why Jesus had to die, you are inevitably going to talk about God's wrath because most explanations well, I shouldn't say most, but some explanations of the atonement really emphasize that God is angry and the death of Jesus assuaged that anger. Or God is angry and he assuaged his own anger in the death of Jesus. There's various ways that is expressed. So we looked at divine wrath in the Old Testament which, as you know, if you've read the Old Testament, there's a lot of divine wrath in the Old Testament. And so we looked at God's wrath as giving people up to their the results of their choice or the hiding of his face, which is given in quite a few passages, starting right here on this document, going all through that page, a list of texts, and this page. And I I didn't give you an exhaustive list. Uh, I have a much bigger list at home of all the references to God's wrath in the Old Testament. Then we looked at some instructive passages and some difficult passages where it seems that God is angry and he wreaks vengeance and he has to be appeased and so on. Uh, we looked at those and studied those and tried to understand them in light of the passages that suggests that his anger isn't really a direct confrontation with people, but rather he gives them their choice. He gives them the results of what they have chosen. Uh, we looked at divine wrath as autonomous or metaphorical for consequences. Sometimes wrath is just used by itself in the Bible and not reference to God, uh, and we looked at those passages. Uh, we looked at the human anger. The Bible is kind of hard on human anger. It doesn't really countenance human anger. And if that's the case, and we're not to be angry, or at least not stay angry very long, why can God be angry and we can't? Uh-huh. Which suggests that there's a difference in the nature of his anger. We then looked at some more discussion, and then we looked at God's wrath as a metaphor rather than something concrete. Then we looked at divine anger in Babylon. And the reason it's important to look at divine anger in Babylon is two reasons. One is Babylon is older than Israel. And it it actually sets the tone for the ancient Near East, particularly among Semitic-speaking peoples like the Israelites. It sets the tone in the ancient Near East for what everybody believes about God. And so... Uh, by looking at Babylon and then comparing and contrasting Babylon with the Old Testament, we can maybe see a difference between divine wrath in the Old Testament and God's wrath uh, in, 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 or the, how the gods got angry in Babylon. And as we looked at that, one of the hallmarks of Babylonian divine anger is that it has to be appeased. And everything 
everything in Babylonian religion is done with it's it's like God the divine anger is the centerpiece of their religion and everything they do in their religion centers around that centerpiece everything they do is to appease that wrath and and uh, and assuage it or prevent it or second guess it when are the gods going to be angry let's do a divination right and and see when the gods are going to be angry and, and attack us and I, I'm putting that in probably stronger language than it should be, but that is that is really everything in Babylonian religion, whether it's building temples, uh, embellishing them, giving incantations to soothe the god, doing liver divination sacrifices to appease him through, you know, the, the way to a human heart is through their stomach, right? <laughs> the, the way through a god's heart is, is seen by the Babylonians as the same thing. You know, if you if you fill them up, they'll be so satiated with food that they don't get angry at you and, and start doing things to you. And and one of the hallmarks too of divine anger in Babylon is that the people have no clue why the gods are angry. They know they've must have sinned, but what sin? They have no clue. And that there is a sharp distinction between divine anger in the Old Testament and Babylonian anger on that one, because God always makes it clear what the anger is, what sin is is involved. There are times in Babylonian references to divine anger where you have gods turning away from cities, leaving cities uh, in wrath, so that they can be destroyed, and so on. Something like you have in the New Testament, in the Old Testament. But overall, it's understood that the gods arbitrarily make the decisions. Their anger is arbitrary. It is vindictive. It is, it is anger that is going to be manifested against you. And there is not, we, we read a whole bunch of, of statements about, uh, Babylon. In this, if you look at this, uh, wrath as a divine characteristic, You'll see several Babylonian works. First, I, I list some Israel, uh, uh, Hebrew Bible texts. And then if you start with the second page, the halfway down, you have the Babylonian portrayals of deity. Uh, I started with I Will Praise the Lord of Wisdom, which is a very famous work uh, that uh, is classic in terms of his description of Marduk. Then the excerpts from the Great Prayer to Ishtar, a literary prayer to Marduk, great hymn to Nabu. Uh, and Shamash him, and so on. We went through all of these. And it sounded a lot like the Old Testament, didn't it? Uh, that was kind of how we perceived it. But one thing that is clear to me is that divine anger in the Hebrew Bible is not an attribute of God. It does, if you go to Exodus 34-7 in this document, and move down towards the end. Actually, let's get our Bibles out and read it. Since there are, some of you are new to this, I, I really want to back up enough to take this in. Exodus 34, and starting with verse 6. And we have a handheld mic here. Uh, who would like to read? Jonathan? Thank you. Read, read both verses. Okay. 
And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He, leave, he punishes the children of their child, children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So, do you hear any anger in there? Well, it punishes the children for the parents for the children. He does. He punishes the parents for the children's sin and the children. Well, what does it say? Uh, punishing for their parents' sins, their children and their grandchildren, as well as the third and fourth generation. Um, that's a. That's really a very poor translation <laughs> of what it says in the Hebrew. Uh, and the word that means to punish does mean to punish in, in certain contexts. So why not here? The thing that's different is when it means punish, it's usually used with a direct object instead of a prepositional object. And you don't punish upon. You punish, well, I, I should take that back. It's not used with the term upon, punish upon, when it means punish. It's just punish the sins, period. Now that may be elliptical. That is a shorthand way of saying the whole thing. But the origin of this word is not punishment. The, the pristine meanings of this word, and it's found in Akkadian as well as in Hebrew. In Akkadian, it never means to punish. The original meaning is to visit the sins of the fathers upon the children. What does it mean to visit the sins? Well, if you, if you if you examine the meanings of this word, and, and it has a lot of different meanings, it has a basic sense of administering, of overseeing, of being a governing. Uh, it can it can be used to muster an army. It can be used to um, to oversee something, to to make sure that something happens. And if you take that original meaning with that preposition, it's clear to me that this means to take this, to allow the sins of the fathers to have an effect on the children negatively to the third and fourth generation. It's unto the third and fourth generation. And what is interesting is that different studies have been done that show that it's usually at the third and fourth generation that predispositions to things, and particularly sexual molestation. Let's say a, a, say a, father, a grandfather molests his, his son or a grandson. It's at the third and fourth generation that the person who's been molested says, I won't turn into another pedophile. I will not do that again. It is like what God is saying here. He, he will let sin do its, take its natural consequences out, but he will put a default in to block it at the third and fourth generation so that it doesn't just, we, you think of how many people in this world would be alcoholics today or have the predisposition to alcoholism if God didn't put some kind of restraint on it. Um, it would, it would be like, it would be multiple compared to what it is now. So that's the closest you get to wrath, but that's not wrath. That's administration. That's that's dealing with the sin problem. 
Uh, and the sense that I really I get from reading the Bible as a whole, it isn't God who's the problem when it comes to sinning. It's sin. Sin is destructive. Sin, uh, and there's there's lots of texts. Um, Ezekiel, for example, Ezekiel uh, 18 uh, says, "Turn away from your sins, for why iniquity be? Why should iniquity be your ruin?" The sense is that sin does this, and God is in charge of that, and He lets it play out to a certain extent, but He puts a default in. So what else? Where else can we find wrath? Well, um, I have the line "very patient." I don't know what what was it you read again for that line? That was like the uh, God who is compassionate and merciful, and then what? Slow to anger. Slow to anger. That's what your version has. That's the closest you get to anger as a part of God's character. Slow to anger, not wrath or anger as a part of his character. Slow to anger is really the word for patience, which suggests that God's patience is the opposite of his wrath. And that's his character. Now, what I what I've tried to point out in this document is that in contrast to God in the Old Testament, wherever he's, his character is delineated, only slow to anger is there, not wrath. The Babylonians had two words for anger, and I give them to you here at the top of this document. Um, Agagu and Azazu. Agagu refers more to the whim of the moment and flying off the handle and, and getting ticked off. Um, Azazu is a characteristic. So the Babylonians, and Azazu is used a lot to, de- to represent divine anger. So the Babylonians understood that the gods, the anger was part of their God's character. That's another contrast to divine anger in the ancient Near East and divine anger in the Old Testament. So we went through this uh, document. I didn't mention the other reason why it's so insignificant to talk about Babylon in relationship to divine anger. If you look at Revelation, why don't we do that? Revelation... Chapter 14, and look at verse 8. Uh, Karen, would you be willing to? Oh, you don't have, it's not working? Uh, chapter 14, verse 8. It's a very short verse. <laughs> a second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries maddening wine of her adulteries. You don't get it, do you, with that version? It, it leaves out, it, it, it really interprets the line. Um, does anybody have something different? Then another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has made all nations drink of the wine of her wrath of her fornication. All right. Yours must be the New King James? The NRSV, okay. The NRSV then uh, has this text as it is closer and it's closer to the Hebrew, to the Greek. Um, the wine of the wrath of her fornication. 
Now that's in contrast to the third angel. And uh, would somebody please read verses 9 to 11. Justin, you want to read that? Chapter 14, verses 9 to 11. Um, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. Okay. What do you do with that? Does that mean that God's anger is worse than Babylonian anger? Uh, is he more vengeful and angry than Babylon? There's several things that we can note about this, and I'm, I'm going to note them very briefly and because we need to move on. This is poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. What is the cup of his wrath? How is that used elsewhere in the Bible? Does anybody know? Who drank the cup of God's wrath? Jesus did. Ah. So did God vent his spleen on Jesus and pour out his anger on Jesus and and Jesus was writhing in in sulfur and flames at the cross or in Gethsemane. You remember Jesus kneels in in Gethsemane and says, Father, if it be possible, remove this cup from me. What is that cup? That's what we're going to be exploring when we move into the New Testament and, and divine anger in the New Testament because it's going to be very clear. But whatever it is, what Jesus experienced is what the third angel's message is depicting. Now, there's another thing you should know. They will suffer the pain of fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. There's another way to translate that, and that is that they will suffer the pain of fire and sulfur by the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. I'm going to suggest something radical. When Moses asked to see God's glory, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, meaning that his glory is his goodness. It's his love, it's his mercy, it's his compassion. It's all those characteristics that God proclaims to Moses on Mount Sinai. That's God's glory. But he told Moses, you cannot see my face, for if you see my face, you cannot live. Sophia, you're in Books of Moses, aren't you? You haven't heard this yet. Uh, neither has Christina. Oh, you're in Women of the Bible, sorry. But weren't you in Books of Moses? Psalms and Wisdom, okay. Uh, so I thought maybe you had heard this. When God said no one can see his face and live, that's one of the most radical statements in the Bible. And we don't catch it because we don't understand ancient Near Eastern idiom and ancient Near Eastern gestures and what they mean. To look into the face of someone and they look back at you means that you are in their favor. If you have been out of favor and they turn their face toward you, that means you are in their favor. They are showing you their grace. They are showing you their mercy. They are showing you their compassion. The face, to look in the face of someone is to experience the, the fullness of their compassion. What that means is, if no one can see God's face and live, 
they cannot they cannot stand in his compassionate presence and see his compassionate face and survive sin will not let them that means that god's love to a sinner is potentially lethal that that's hard for us to grasp it's, it's counterintuitive it's counter everything we've we've historically believed about god but that is the truth about that uh moses could only see god's backside and that's his turning away his leaving him and his wrath that's all moses could bear and that's what led ellen white to say that human beings can only bear a shadow of god's glory the backside and you remember when moses comes down from the mountain his face is shining so brightly from seeing god's back that the people cannot stand in his presence they start running away and he has to veil his face in order for them to survive the experience or at least to be able to stand in his presence so what i'm suggesting here is that the wicked the smoke of their painful suffering goes up forever and ever it is painful for them to be in the presence of love infinite love fullness of love and they are uh they suffer fire and sulfur in the presence of the angels and the presence of the lamb they suffer it because they're in that presence and they're out of harmony with that presence and it is to them a consuming fire uh there's there's a number of other places we could go to show this but if that is what the third angel's message is about and the contrast is babylon and it's wine of the wrath of her fornication if you follow that imagery into revelation 18 where it says pretty much the same thing babylon come out babylon has fallen fallen uh because of the wine of the wrath she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication and it adds the line come out of her my people uh if you go to the end of the chapter that wine represents the blood that has been shed by babylon in her wrath of her fornication so what is her fornication let's go to revelation 18 and um i'm looking for which verse okay um why don't we start with 1 and read to verse 3 and i'm wondering sophia would you like to read those verses please 1 to 3 after this i saw another angel coming down from heaven having great authority and the earth was made bright with his splendor he called out with a mighty voice fallen fallen is babylon the great it has become a dwelling place of demons a haunt of every foul spirit a haunt of every foul bird a haunt of every foul and hateful beast for all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxury okay, there you have it babylon is fallen because she made all nations drink of the wine that is the bloodshed from anger of her fornication with king And what we established last time, if you'll recall, 
I just didn't tie it with Revelation that time. I stopped short of that. What we established last time is that the origins of divine anger are tied intimately with divine with kings who are angry. Once you have angry kings who are the hot top of the hierarchy of Babylon, you have a portrayal before you that's going to rub off in terms of your religion and you're going to view the gods as angry. And and I haven't finished the study, but I have looked at... Uh, the Chicago Syrian Dictionary, and have looked at all the references that I could find to anger in Assyrian, basically the Akkadian language. And they have entries with texts. Uh, it's, it's the best way to, to go to text and find out what those texts say. And over and over again, where in the time periods where you have the greatest amount of kingly power, that is uh, conquest, bloodshed, kings going out and conquering nations and annexing them and, and taking them and planting them from one place to another. The more you have that, the more you have angry gods and angry kings. It just seems to go together. And I would like to propose to you that there's a reason why God didn't want Israel to have a king. It's many reasons. Once you have a king, there's a fusion between your picture of that king and your picture of deity, particularly in the ancient Near East. You tend to see God as like the big man on top. That is the original union of church and state and how Adventists have historically interpreted this text that we just read is that the fornication of Babylon with kings is religion and state coming together and forming an alliance. Well, that alliance is formed theologically when we fuse our picture of a king or a picture of a governance with deity. And often what fuels that union is Belief in divine anger and divine sovereignty. Because if God is on our side, we have the right to rule and try to control. And if you don't line up to our regime and to weigh our way of thinking, we will punish you in anger. Because we believe God, or the gods in the case of Babylon, is going to punish you in anger. Let me tell you, Ancient Near Eastern kings wielded divine anger as a propagandistic tool to get people in line. If if you broke my treaty in Assyria, for example, uh, where you have a lot of divine anger and a lot of kingly anger, uh, in Assyria, if if a vassal nation broke the treaty and didn't pay tribute, they had sinned against the God of Assyria and there would be reprisal because that God is angry. It's, it's the undergirding. I, I mentioned that divine anger is the centerpiece of Babylonian religion. It's, it's, around, it's, it's what kind of controls everything because it's why you do everything is, is to either uh, 
foretell God's anger or, or appease it or um, prevent it or whatever. Um, but it's also a political tool. And that seems to be what is going on here in Revelation. Uh, we looked at, at the evidence for that a brief, or, or my statements on that. Uh, the evidence would take very, very long to unpack. But we come now to the last page, or the next to the last page of this document, and we need to read uh, these passages. This is a, a good summary of how deity worship was in Mesopotamia. Um, Christina, why don't you read the first two paragraphs? This is Jean Botero, a French scholar, uh, religion in ancient Mesopotamia. It was translated in English some time ago. Um, starting where Jean, you see Jean Botero, uh, and then the first paragraph. It's the next to the last. More than one passage might be included among those numinous hymns that R. Odo has brought to light. In them, the supernatural is not the object of a coldly reasoned glorification, but in truth we see extreme reverence, profound devotion, and unarguable emotion that the supernatural evoked in the hearts of those ancient believers. The divine in its multiple personalized presentations was above all considered to be something grandiose, inaccessible, dominating, and to be feared. Notice inaccessible, dominating, and to be feared. Isn't that an image of an ancient Near Eastern king? Right there. Uh, And we know that kingship existed many, many centuries before writing was amended. So the kingship is as old as as religion almost, and yet it wasn't as strongly fearsome as it later became in the time periods of the conquest. Okay, go ahead and read that last sentence. Before it, even the gods were believed to bend like reeds in a storm. Okay. Uh, Why don't we just go ahead and read all of this? Uh, Bianca, why don't you read the next paragraph? Why don't you read? Okay, read the next two. Yeah, that's fine. The divinity was never the object of an anxious, enthusiastic pursuit. To seek out a god, as was sometimes said, was out of a need for his protection, his assistance. It was not inspired by a desire to be close to him, to be in his presence, to have the peace or happiness of finding oneself in his company. Hymns professing a bottomless desire for a god's presence indicate admiration and not an impatience to get closer to him. The divine did not attract in the manner of a desirable thing, of a presence apt to enchant the heart, as in a true form of love. Its, Mesopotamia's, gods were considered to be very high authorities, upon whom the one depended on, in complete humility, obligated to serve them. They were distant and haughty bosses, masters and rulers, and above all, not friends. One submitted to them, one feared them, one bowed down and trembled before them. One did not love or like them. The verb to like, to love, appeared only sporadically with the name of a divinity as its object. And in those rare cases, it never conveyed the sense of an impetuous or and tender pursuit. 
even less of a need, a passionate desire, but only the inclination that a modest and self-effacing servant might feel toward an omnipotent and sublime Lord and Master. Honor your God, connect yourself to Him. The gods were too highly placed, vertiginous, transcendent, to evoke thirst, the flames of captivation. Their powers, like their natures, were much too far beyond the human grasp, too much too crushing and formidable to unleash the human hearts, anything other than a fearful reverence, an admiring respect, a humble adoration. Botero goes on to suggest that the gods emanated terror and a luminosity and power that kept human beings at a distance. Okay. Compare this with Exodus 33 and 34. And note that Moses wants God's presence to go with his people. This is my writing now. Because it is his presence going with them that distinguishes them from every other people on earth. You think of that. God is with us, is different from every other nation on earth. They don't have the gods with them. They don't even want them with them because they're so fearsome. The people grieve when God threatens to abandon them. When God makes his glory, his luminosity, go before Moses, he has to conceal him for his protection. But he describes that glory that Moses cannot see by pronouncing his name and then delineating his character. It is interesting that while all of the attributes he lists make up, makes up his love, he does not use the word love to describe himself. Here. Elsewhere, when Israel is commanded to love the Lord their God in Shema, in the Shema, as the hear, O Israel, Yahweh your God, Yahweh is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and so on. The verb seems to denote action such as obedience. It would seem then that until Jesus, God could not describe himself as love to his people because they would not, they would have understood the word to mean honor or some other respectful term that kept them at a distance to him. Read the next paragraph. Actually, finish it. Rotero goes on. Of course, we often encounter terms that express an easier attitude towards the divine. In them, the divine appears to hold an authentic potential for goodness, for gracious, for gracious condescension, for indulgence towards humans. For it was inevitable, inevitable that since nothing inherently forced humans to suspect the gods of being particularly mean and cruel, humans found it natural to expect help, good deeds, and favors from the gods, until the contrary was proved. Just as one might naturally expect the same from the politically powerful of this world, the hymns and prayers cited above mention a certain number of traits that manifested not only the authority, loftiness, and power of the gods, but also their good-natured and helpful side. Sin was a merc- Is that a name of a god? Sin? Sin. Sin. Mm-hmm. Sin was a merciful and forgiving father, and Samas took care, f- took care for all the peoples of the lands, whereas one could implore Ishtar, lady of ladies, goddess of goddesses, and expect favorable, a favorable response to entreaties and prayers. Despite the prevalence from the old Babylonian period on, and particularly during the first millennium of divine anger, Botero ignores this active trait entirely. Yet the anger of deity increases with the anger of kings and with their power of conquest. Okay. This, this has helped me to understand a whole lot about the Old Testament and why God is not stated in the Old Testament as love. Uh, because that word love just didn't mean to the ancient Near Eastern mind. They didn't really have a word for love 
the closest that would come to it is compassion. Uh, and you've, you've gotten a sense of, of how the Babylonian gods, how the, how the Babylonians viewed their gods. Uh, not someone you want to get close to. And then you think of Jesus, who's God with us, and how he exemplifies that God is love. Uh, it's, it's vastly anti-Babylonian. Uh, I'd like to suggest that if you follow divine anger in the Bible in a kind of a chronological sequence of the canon, I don't mean in the chronological sequence of the way historical criticism has has revisited the text and, and broken it down into bits and pieces, but, I, but canonically, in the Genesis, God is never angry once. In Exodus, the first time he mentions that he's angry, he gives Moses what he wants. That is, he wants some, Moses wants someone to go in his place. God sends Aaron. And it's, the text says that God is angry. And that's what he does when he's angry. He gives Moses what he wants. Um, as we move on, wherever there's power, God is angry. And the times where God is most angry in the Hebrew Bible, in the prophets, you have, it's the, during the monarchy. Once you have a king, the only way God can speak to people and be understood is through anger. It doesn't mean that he is angry in any sense of the the human ways we see that. Jonathan, you looked like you had your hand up. I'm in a Romans class with Dr. Hernandez, and um, he had us read through it just like superficially. And in like the beginning of the book where Paul's talking about God's wrath, if if he mentions several times like a picture of God's wrath as like, you know, fire and brimstone. He equally mentions times of God letting people have their way yeah. with his wrath. So I thought I thought that's where this. we're that's yeah. where, that's essentially where we're headed. Um, starting next week, we will you will ha- we will go back to, and I'll try to bring extra copies. God's wrath in the Bible, uh, starting with page ten. And God's wrath in the New Testament. And you notice there's not a lot of text there. Although that would take several pages if I had double spaced them. <laughs> like I did the Old Testament text. But nonetheless, we should be able to move through and see a real change. In, in terms of how God's wrath is, is revealed. And, and of course Romans 1 is going to be central to that. To understanding his anger. So um, let's see how we're doing for time. Oh, we still have a few minutes. Well, you need to get to you need to get to church, don't you? <laughs> um, so why don't we close now uh, with prayer? Let's bow our heads. Um, maybe I should wait. Actually, did you want to discuss this a little more before we close? I, I just I realized I kind of just brought it to a close. Yeah. I have a question. Um, if you talk about Old Testament getting picture, of, getting our picture of God, or in the Old Testament people getting their picture of God from like kings, um, and now, do you think we often get our picture of God from our parents, as as sort of? I think authori- I think to a great extent we do. I think we also get it from key figures in our lives, significant people. 
Do you think that view of God can be flawed too? Oh, yes. Yes. Can you can you think of examples well, of that too? Certainly an abusive parent is going to give us a very terrible picture of God. I, I remember a student sitting down with me in the dining commons here. This is many years ago. And she said, I really have a hard time picturing God as my father because of my own father. He was so cold, so distant, and I couldn't relate to him. And if God is like my father, I, I don't want anything to do with him. I, I think it works for good or for ill, depending on our parents. And that sometimes, uh, and even the best of our parents make mistakes. All parents do. And, and that can color our picture of God. We can start picturing God as, uh, as like our parents. Um, so yes. Uh, I tended, I tended to grow up kind of seeing God as potentially scolding because of certain things that I experienced in my childhood. And it was a relief to read the statement that never scold your parents, never scold your children. <laughs> I was like, oh, God doesn't scold me. <laughs> so yes, uh, we, we know that parents stand in the place of God to their children. They are the children's first God that they worship. And that's why it's so crucial that parents know God as he really is when they parent their children. That they can model that. Anybody that has authority over us, anybody that has power over us, is going to be kind of like a God figure. And that's why the picture of God as a servant, as the supreme servant, and the model that Jesus gave his disciples about you know, the Gentiles rule it over one another and exercise authority over one another, but that is not to be the way you do. Whoever is great among you must be your servant. Whoever is first among you must be slave of all. That model totally destroys any kind of anger because you don't rule in anger if you're a servant. It's just not possible. And Jesus used himself as the model for the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to uh, give his life as a ransom in place of many. Yeah. Any other questions or comments about this? This is somewhat radical. But I'm convinced that the call to come out of Babylon is the call to come out of a wrong picture of God. It's, it's a call to come out of the Babylonian picture of God because we inherited the Babylonian picture of God. The most prevailing picture of God in all religions, including Christianity, is a Babylonian picture. And, and we can trace it historically from the Babylonians to the Greeks, from the Greeks to the Romans, and from the Romans to Roman Christianity. So I think it's time to close so you can get to church. Father, we thank you that Jesus came to clarify and fully reveal your character to us. 
And as we now move, prepare to move to the New Testament, we pray that we may see your wrath as it really is, fully and completely. May we understand what revelation means when it contrasts Babylonian wrath with your wrath. Bless us and help us to not only see this, but to let it transform our, our thoughts and our minds about you and about how we treat other people. In Jesus' name, amen.